So excited to have you here. Uh, we're actually going to be reading this morning out of uh, John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. And it says, uh, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Kim. Uh, good morning again, everybody. My name's Sean. If I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor, teaching us here for Redemption Peoria. Uh, if you are new, something you'll hear us see every week, and if you come often, you're probably sick of me saying it every week, but Redemption Church is one church, nine different congregations. Each one of those congregations that spread out across the state of Arizona is elder-led and lead pastor-led, and we have philosophical convictions as to why we do that the way that we do. Um, don't worry, someone spilled something, which is always hilarious, because then it just... Go ahead, Bill. You got the floor. Go ahead, Bill. John, you got something to say? Oh, thank you. I love you too. That was nice. Way to turn that on the head right there. Now I feel like a jerk. Thanks, John. Um, so we're going to jump in uh, to John 9 here in a second. But before we do, and this is uh, perfect while we're cleaning this up, just let me tell you something real quick about uh, how we got here and so, uh, uh, something we're going to pray for. So we planted Redemption Peoria back in 2015 in February. So actually next month is four years, which is crazy. Um, we got planted out of Redemption Arcadia, which was actually originally um, Praxis Arcadia. And Praxis Arcadia and Praxis Tempe were part of Praxis Church, which planted in 2004. Praxis Arcadia and Praxis Tempe became Redemption Church in 2011, along with another church that planted in uh, 1991 called East Valley Bible Church that had just recently planted a church called Second Mile, which is now Redemption Gateway. All four of those congregations came into existence and created Redemption Church in 2011. Redemption Tempe, Redemption uh, Arcadia, Redemption Gateway, and Redemption Gilbert. So when we process, when people are like, when's the start date? It's not as simple as that, right? Uh, especially congregations starting at different points. Furthermore, like who started it? It's not even as simple as that. Justin Anderson planted Praxis uh, Church in, like I said, 2004 with those two congregations. But before that, if we were really to uh, put the nail in the coffin and say who started it all was a guy named Tom Schrader back in 1991 when he planted East Valley Bible, which exploded. If you were a believer in the 90s, um, and you were in the valley, you probably heard his name or heard his voice on the radio. Uh, so many of you guys uh, grew up under his teaching or were at a time in, in your life under his teaching or just listened to him. He uh, is, I mean, just solid, gifted Bible teacher. Well, I think most of you guys are aware, but if you're not, just so we're on the same page, he passed away last week. And, um, you know, overall, there's, there's a mourning that goes along with that whole process. We recognize in living in the already, not yet, there's a little bit of tension of the sting that we feel. Uh, I mean, I, I knew him uh, for probably five years, well, like seven years now. So obviously, you know, his, his daughters, his wife, 
um, his extended family. They're all mourning. The staff at Redemption Gilbert is mourning. It's all tough. And, and at the same time, right, there's this tension that we live in because we state the obvious as believers. I mean, there's no question, like, we're struggling, but Tom's not struggling right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's kicking it with Jesus, and it's beautiful. It's funny. I was telling first service, like, it's, we, you know, we just had this time of, of worship it's almost like just, this is very real. Tom is somewhere right now, and in his existence in, in being somewhere right now, he, he's able to look at our worship and go, oh, that's cute. Look at him worshiping, right? Like, he knows the extent of worship, right? There's a beauty to that that we can hold fast to. And we may feel this tension now. There's no question, obviously, as believers, we will see him again, uh, which we're grateful for that. So here's what we're going to do. I want to pray. Um, just a prayer of thankfulness, just for the ministry that Tom, uh, that God did in Tom. And um, yeah, just so much work that was done there. Uh, we're going to pray for his family and, and close friends as they mourn in this process. And then I'll pray for our time together and we'll jump into to John 9. Let's pray. Father, the, this morning, Redemption Peoria, congregation that you have on the earth right now in this time, uh, we just pause and we recognize that we would not be a congregation if it wasn't for the work that you did through Tom Schrader. Yeah, a lot of people even in this room, um, you use Tom in really amazing ways to grow their faith. So we just stop and say thanks. Uh, Tom truly was a nobody. He, like, he was not amazing or super talented. Um, you just chose to use him and he exuded that, exuded that everywhere he went. I mean, just a very humble man, and um, we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the, the work you did within him. Uh, we're mindful of the fact that uh, his daughters and uh, son-in-law, his grandkids, uh, his, the people that uh, were, you know, he was their boss, um, friends. It's just tough right now, and so I pray that you be with him, provide peace uh, across the re- redemption family. Uh, we love you. We thank you. We're mindful of just your goodness and all these things. Uh, pray that now as we open up John 9, you'd be with us. We submit our minds to you and our hearts to you. And, and then our lives, we recognize our, our hands and our feet are going to do something with what we hear this morning. And we pray that we'd be obedient to the ways of Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. February 2nd, can you throw that up again, Eric? February 2nd is the funeral if you want to go to that. Uh, it's at Scottsdale Bible Church. I've talked to Tyler many times. I don't think it's going to be big enough, but you're welcome to try to fit in if you can. Uh, so it's at 10 a.m. then. All right, John chapter 9 is where we're going to go. I got uh, a couple things to say before we get there as, uh, according to the text, to set up the text. And here's where I want to start. Um, I'm not saying I say everything about this movie is awesome. There are many parts in this movie that I do not agree with and I think are inappropriate. Disclaimer over. But there is a slapstick comedy called Talladega Nights. Uh, and I personally... Um, I personally am a big Will Ferrell fan. Yes, there are many things. Yes, but I already did the disclaimer, so I get pardoned. Um, Okay? So, in uh, Talladega Nights is probably the most quoted or at least known um, dialogue of Will Ferrell in any of his movies, and it's the Baby Jesus uh, dialogue. So here's essentially what happens is um, they're sitting down. Will Ferrell's sitting down. His name is Ricky Bobby. He's a NASCAR racer, and um, he is sitting down to pray for the food. And this is the dialogue between him. His kids are sitting there, his father-in-law, his partner, and his wife. Um, This is what it says. Ricky Bobby says, Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we thank you so much for this beautiful, 
or this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. He goes on to pray over and over, dear tiny infant Jesus, his wife interrupts him. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit off-putting to pray to a baby. Ricky Bobby responds, well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you could say it to your own grown-up Jesus, or teenage Jesus, or bearded Jesus, or whatever you want. Cal, his partner, then interjects and says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt, because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party. And I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. That's a telling statement. I like to think of Jesus, like, with eagle's wings, Wings singing uh, lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, uh, with an angel band. And he goes on with ridiculousness. But here's, here's the point. It's a slapstick comedy. Yes, there's parts in it that uh, I would, you know, it is what it is. Disclaimer done. But here's what I want to say. I don't, think, uh, I don't think Will Ferrell, even in this moment, is recognizing the cultural um, exegesis that he's doing in this moment. Honestly, I think there's something to be said in this moment that our, our society would even take. That's just true. And part of it even makes it funny. And it's, it's honestly really encapsulated in the statement. I like to party. So I like my Jesus to party, right? And this is ultimately what we do. And, and, and a lot of times it's unbeknownst to ourselves. We like this. And so we like our Jesus to like this. And so your Jesus, we talk about this within nationalism, uh, political politics, whatever. Like you, you, ha- you have a Republican bent, and so you like your Jesus to have a Republican bent. You have a Democrat bent, so you like your Jesus to have a Democratic, re- whatever it is. And so um, in understanding this, and understanding that probably 95% of the time, everyone in this room, we're not even aware of the fact that we have these bents, that we actually paint Jesus tweak him a little bit more to the way that we like him. And we're not doing it intentionally. Honestly, we're not doing it intentionally, but it's just how it rolls out that it's good for us to stop, look at the person of Jesus and compare the Jesus that we like, like the one that we like, we like our Jesus because we like to party. We like our Jesus to party. We look at Jesus and we go, well, does Jesus like to party? And yes, of course he does, right? That was a joke. I'm sorry. Not like Cal would party, but Jesus is Anyway, let's just move on. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, Here's what I would say. Ultimately, our job as believers is to look at Jesus, the perfect human, to understand that he is God in flesh. And when you want to be perfect, when you want to have your life line up with the stars, you to go, man, I want to be this type of person. There is no other human that has ever existed that is better than Jesus. He's not just sinless. He's perfect. And in being perfect, he continues to show us the way of righteousness. And so what we're doing for a hundred days leading up before Easter, is we're looking at the person of Jesus. We're unpacking the Gospels, and we're looking at he, as, uh, how he continues to interact with people and saying, okay, see how this is Jesus? See how this is Jesus? Last week, we did that with the widow of Nain. This week, we're going to do it in John 9 uh, with a blind man. Now, before I read the text, this is the last thing I'm going to say. It's really difficult for me at times, I'm just being honest, trying to show the beauty of Jesus. And I can be a passionate person, I get it, but it's, it's difficult because I want to get up here and go, look how awesome Jesus is, see him. So at times it's better for us to stop and not just say, look at how beautiful Jesus is, but compare him to other things. The same way that if I was to try to explain how big the sun is, not until I go, the sun is this big and there's the earth. Then you go, wow, like, like I see that now. The sun is huge. 
This is what the Gospels do a lot, and it's awesome. Over and over, Jesus is, um, and I, people say I use this word a lot, so only time in 2019, okay? He, it's, he's in juxtaposition to something, okay? He, he's, he's now sitting in this place, and he's, he's being held up against the Pharisees or the disciples. And in this passage, we have both the disciples and the Pharisees, okay? So let's read our text, and then I'm going to unpack ultimately what we're going to try to get at, okay? So this is what it says in verse uh, 1, chapter 9. As he, this is uh, Jesus, passed by, just so you know, he's coming uh, on the heels of Jesus just got the Jews really, really mad. He said he was better than uh, Abraham, which is always a bad idea to say to the Jews, but he says it. Um, He passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent, I'm sorry, we must work the works of him who set me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So there's a ton to unpack. Here's what we're going to do this morning before I give you the cultural context. For us to see in comparison to how beautiful Jesus is, and we're going to read the story of this man. Jesus just healed this man. We have to um, remove a little bit of um, preconceived ideas, meaning um, there's a sociologist, Mark Sayers, in this podcast uh, called uh, This Cultural Moment that I think is pretty acute to, acute to explaining this. And this is, this is what I want to put in front of you. Mark Sayers argues ultimately that there are three cultures for us as believers to understand. There is pre-Christian culture, Christian culture, and post-Christian culture. And what you have in pre-Christian culture is a different set of rules that you operate by. You naturally operate by these different rules. As Christ is entered into that culture, he begins to establish a kingdom that brings kingdom dynamics, kingdom rules that are different than pre-Christian culture rules. But then what you find is as a nation, a society, a village, a town, a people group slowly move away from Christ, they hold on to those Christian values, but they don't hold on to Christ. And so this is the language we've used before is they want the kingdom without the king. And so what we have in Western society is we love the idea of justice, Whether you're a believer or not, you could look at a blind man or you could look at somebody who's maimed or somebody who has a bad plight in life, something easy, someone who is poor or whatever it is, the panhandler, and you go, man, I need to step towards them. It's right for me to have justice on them. It's right for me to take care of them. And everyone in society would applaud you because it's right. But here's what's crazy. We only can say that as a society because of Christian culture. If we are in pre-Christian culture, let's say we're in India and there's someone poor on the side of the road begging, pre-Christian culture looks at them in India and goes, that's karma. The reality is that person did something in their past life that they deserve. Do you understand? And so what we have now as we move down the timeline is these presuppositions. And so here's what I'm going to do. When Jesus, Jesus exudes compassion and takes care of a blind man, Don't let that go over your head. Don't let that be like, well, of course, you assume it because you're in a post-Christian culture. In this culture, that's insane. You don't move towards the leper. You don't move towards the blind man. You don't move towards the widow. You don't move towards the sick. 
The reality is they have what they have. Get yours. And I'm not, this is, this is, I, I, I've yet to study a solid pre-Christian culture before Christ was entered in where this is not the persona. And I mean, even major religions within Muslims um, that you find uh, uh, in Buddhism, there's a lot of this pre-Christian culture that I just described that is just reality. But Christian culture doesn't uh, let us get there. And so here's what we have. Jesus and, and his disciples are walking. Uh, they see this blind man, and then there's this interaction. Now, just some, for some cultural context, most likely this blind man is at the gate. Uh, he, it's, uh, Ashpah is the gate that's called there. And the reason I think that is that's where they're going to um, uh, beg. That's where beggars would go. But furthermore, the, the uh, Sent River, which is sent from a place called Gehin, was built in, jeez, uh, I think it's Second Chronicles 32, by Hezekiah. And it's this river that flows. It's sent from Gehin to this river that flows about 50 feet from the gate. So, my best guess is that the, disciple, the disciples and Jesus are walking through uh, the gate. They see this blind man begging. Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud. When it says anoints, it means place the hands on, places his hands on the eyes, and tells them to go about 50 feet and washes his uh, face in this river that's flowing through. That's contextually what's going on, okay? But then there's this... Um, conversation between the disciples and Jesus before all this takes place. And that's what I want to unpack a little bit, okay? So let me read it again just so we're on the same page. It says this, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay. Again, we assume that this would be a natural response. Well, come on, no one sinned. That is not natural to first century Judaism or first century, this first century culture in general. But, but here's what Jesus does, which is so abnormal. Where the disciples are looking back as to what sin has done, Jesus is looking forward to what redemption can do. And so from their perspective, he's a symbol of sin. Do you see that? He's a symbol of sin. Someone has sinned. But from Jesus' Jesus's perspective, he's a symbol of God's glory. That God is going to do something. Not something that had been had because of this, but now God is, is, has him here because he's going to do something. And this is a big shift here. But let's talk about this. If we're going to compare Jesus' culture that he brings, a culture of compassion, versus what the disciples are doing, we've got to come up, we've got to use two terms uh, simultaneously for us to understand these. And the two terms we're going to use that we're going to see all through this passage is the term judgment and the term compassion. The disciples start with a pre-Christian culture mentality. They start with judgment. It's simple, right? They see it. He sinned. It's a, and so here's how we can play this out and understand, uh, you know, judgment versus compassion. What judgment always starts with, like 95% of the time, is it starts with assuming the narrative. The disciples already know and because they already know, let's just step away from the disciples for a moment. What we always do when we know the narrative, like, like take the panhandler, they're probably lazy. They're probably lazy, which maybe they are, but we assume the narrative. And so here's what we have. We have advice. I know where you are. I know why you are the way that you are. And so here's my advice. And what happens in that moment is as we give advice when it's removed from relationship because it's based on judgment, we've already decided where they are. We haven't entered in to understand that person feels afraid, uh, probably turned off to want to have a conversation, honestly, maybe angry, misunderstood, frustrated. But what Jesus brings to the table is, no, 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 wait, you're misunderstanding what's going on. And so what he does is he starts with compassion. 
as he enters into this man's story where the disciples are standing off. We have no idea how close they are. For all we know, the disciples could be asking Jesus this question in an earshot within the blind man. So they're hearing like, they're just talking about me, which would have been totally normal. But Jesus moves towards him. He understands, now we're not omniscient, so we don't fully always understand what's going on. So for us, it would be entering into that story to understand what was going on, and then understanding what going, what's going on, we take their burden upon us, and therefore we love them well. And so the language again, which is really important, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind. It is not that this man, uh, man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. Um, we can see immediately, I want to explain how big the compassion of Jesus is like the sun but you need to see it in juxtaposition to to all other lights. Because let's stop real quick. Let's come to the disciples' defense. They are doing what all of us naturally do, operating naturally in a pre-Christian culture. Meaning, um, let's use an example. Uh, I always use sex, so let's not use sex as an example. Let's use laziness, okay? If someone is lazy and they say, I'm not going to do anything anymore. I don't want to go to work. Okay, Decision. You don't go to work, you lose your job. You lose your job, you don't have money. You don't have money, you probably don't have a place to stay or food to eat. And we look, and it's simple. Our logic is simple. That's what happens. I mean, this is a basic Galatians 3, you reap what you sow, homie. Like, that's what you did. You didn't go to work, you want to be lazy, this is what you get. That is a basic premise. This is the premise that Job's friends operate with. This is what we naturally have. Here's the problem. It's the wrong premise. It assumes a narrative that is not true here. And Jesus starts with a different premise. He starts with compassion, not judgment. That it's natural for us to go here, but Jesus is pushing us in this direction. Let's go on with the story, and you're going to see this in untold ways. Uh, side note, I got three side notes for you just as we're about to read this. It's interesting. In 21st century culture, well, let's start in 1st century. In 1st century culture, um, it is believed that um, when sin happens to somebody or something, I'm sorry, when something bad happens to somebody, that, that it's because that person has sinned. And so that person would get mad at themselves. They'd get down on themselves. I'm stupid. I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? What did I do? Lord, please. I don't know what I did. That's how they would operate. In 21st century culture, what's interesting is as uh, that person might get mad at themselves and frustrated. 21st century, we believe in our innocence so much that when something bad happens to us, we're frustrated at God that it's happening to us. It's an interesting paradigm shift, but that's a side note. Take it for whatever it's worth. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Verse 9. Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were, you, how were your eyes opened? He said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So let's just stop real quick. So he goes to his family and friends. I mean, this is a close-knit society. They see him and they go, dude, you were blind. And now you're what? You can see. Like, this is crazy. And it was like, it's probably someone like him. And he's going, no, 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 it's me. Now, the reason I want to stop, because I think this is hilarious, because I think it mimics uh, what we have in Christian culture. Uh, sorry, like, when you become a believer, your non-believing friends are going like, dude, why are you acting so different? Or like, she just kind of, like, you, she kind of, and they almost don't believe that this change is real. The greatest example of this is Al Macklin. Um, Al Macklin, by his own affirmation, I did not know Al before Jesus Christ was a terrible human being, okay? 
And so he, he was so bad as, as a police officer that there was a guy that uh, um, Linton Al introduced me to named Danny who was on the police force with Al before he knew Jesus. Danny came to church here, saw Al, and knew his life was so bad, thought to himself, why is he here? That's what he thought. Al's life was so bad, right? It's like, no, I know Al Macklin, and there ain't no way he loves Jesus, right? That's, this is what's happening, this physical feeling. Al's an okay dude now, but, um, but anyway, that's what I see, which I, I think is, is hilarious. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had uh, been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said to, uh, again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. So now the people go, we got to figure this out. Bring it to the religious leaders of the time, these Pharisees. Bring him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are going, you were really blind. He was really blind. He, you were blind. Oh, this is what happened. Jesus did that. This is crazy. I don't know what to do with this. They start to argue. He's from God. He's not from God. In the midst of all of this, the frustration that the Pharisees are feeling is because ultimately what Jesus did, they felt broke the law. They felt that they broke uh, the pharisaical law, which is part of something on top of the Jewish law, which is a part of something called the Mishnah, if you want to look it up. But ultimately what you have is Jesus acted on the Sabbath. And the best way you can understand this is um, we have way more of an era of nationalism than we do kind of religious allegiance within America. And so when someone burns a flag in America, this is why people get upset. Because essentially what you're declaring when you burn a flag, the American flag, is you're saying anti-America while in America. And it would be just as obvious to somebody on a Sabbath whether they were Jewish or not. If they were walking a certain amount of paces, if they were working, you would go, they're not Jewish. And if they're not Jewish, they're not part of Yahweh's crew. And so the Pharisees are looking at Jesus going, he, he operated on the Sabbath this wrong way, not cool. And so that's why they're frustrated, if you can understand that. Which I also find interesting, side note point number two, it's interesting that the spiritual blind could never fully understand miracles. Like you're trying to evangelize to someone to explain what God has done in your own life and they can't get around it. It's because they're spiritually blind. Um, and that's what we see here as they're investigating this blind man. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh no, let's go to the parents first. I skipped over that. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind, as we said, and received sight until they called the parents of the man who had received sight and asked them, is this your son? Who, uh, who you say was born blind. How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, in, parentheses, uh, in uh, parentheses here, uh, his parents said these things because they feared the, Lord, uh, feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone... Uh, should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, which would be religious ostracization. It's just all bad. And verse 23 says, therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
So now the, the, the language or the conversation about this blind man has shifted from Jesus and the disciples to the parents and the, the, the Pharisees, which is important because this is going to be the first step in us seeing the way that now the Pharisees, first we saw the, Jew, or the disciples, but now the Pharisees see this blind man. And I want you to imagine, we're sitting at dinner, we're out to dinner uh, somewhere, right? And the waitress comes along and as she, she comes along, she goes, what would you like? What would you like? What would you like? What would they like? You would go, well, ask them. What, what, why are you? I mean, you would only not ask them if probably they're a child. Like, can they not decide for themselves? We're, we're seeing immediately, um, which the parents catch up on, they, they pick up on this, not even really seeing this man as fully human. I hear what he's saying, but I don't believe him. And his parents keep making the same declaration. He's of age. Go ask him, Right? So then they go call him and have this conversation with him. And this dude is hilarious. Okay. Verse 24. So far, the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered whether he is a, I'm sorry. He answered whether he is a sinner. I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Yes. And amen. Verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27. This is brilliant. Verse 27. He's going to get him. He answered them. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Get it. Verse 28. They revile him saying, you are his disciple. Good, good comeback. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Verse 30. The blind man goes out and again, the, the, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. So just stop real quick. There's a lot to unpack there. The first thing I got to share with you is every time I read this account, since uh, 1991, well, yeah, I wasn't a believer then, but since I'm becoming a believer and watching the movie Hook, every time I think of this interaction as Pockets, there's this interaction, if you've ever seen the movie Hook, where Pockets is arguing uh, with Rufio as to whether or not Robin Williams is Peter Pan. And he's got this sass. He's like, well, how do you know? Maybe he is Peter Pan and he's trying to save his kids, right? And there's this creativity to him. There's this sass to him. That's how I hear the blind man. He's just going at the Pharisees going, oh, do you want to become his disciples? I bet you do. There's this, this intelligence about him, this boldness about him, right? He's not afraid. He's already been cast out of the synagogue. He doesn't care if he gets, like, what are you going to do? Treat me like you're already treating me? Like he's, this, he, has, he has no fear here. It's, it's beautiful. It's brilliant. He's, he's bold in this moment. And what we find is immediately at the end of this, this uh, section here, we get an answer to the disciples' questions. And I think this is John's way of connecting this pre-Christian culture, the way that the disciples view this blind man, is the same way that the Pharisees do. The Pharisees answer the disciples' questions in saying, you were born in utter sin. Do you see that? You see that there in verse 33? This man went out from God. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? I mean, this is the, the, the answer. Now, 
We're going to read 35 here, but I want you to know if, if you can look at your Bibles again, look at verse 28, because this is going to be important as we start to uh, move towards the end of the text. It says, and they reviled him. So this is a first statement. At, in this interaction, reviled is not a word that we use too often, but the, I feel like a really good translation for us to understand is they publicly humiliate him. They just address him right there. Like just berate him. And in doing this, listen to this language at the end of 34, they cast him out. Okay. So they're in this investigation. They're berating him, berating him, berating him. And then they cast him out. I don't think it's an accident that verse 35 says this. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, I don't think it's an accident. You don't have to know Greek. It's in Greek and English. There is an activeness about what Jesus is doing. He hears passively that this blind man, previously blind man, was cast out. And Jesus moves towards the cast out one. Do you see that? He finds the cast out one. Now we're going to come back to that, but I need you to see some glimpses of the gospel there and the difference of the culture that Jesus brings in moving towards compassion, continual fall. But then he continues to, to build on this. L- l- listen to this. As he cast him out, he found him. He said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world and those who do not, that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. We're going to unpack verse 39 with, in a second, but here's what I want you to see in the beauty of the gospel. Jesus moves towards the man who is cast out. And this is important. He is already physically taking care of him, hasn't he? But Jesus knows that this man receiving physical sight is only temporary. Meaning one day his eyes will fail him again. One day he'll be dead in the grave. And Jesus puts eternal things in front of him. He doesn't just care about his body. He cares about his soul. And so he goes after him. First walking towards caring for the physical. Now going towards again finding caring for the soul. This is beautiful. And what Jesus does, I love how John writes this because I think it's, it's pretty creative. I think it's a, a niche little way for, for him to do this. The man then worships Jesus. This is intentional because to say that, de- to make that declaration that you worship anyone besides Yahweh is complete blasphemy. Jesus does not reject this worship, but accepts it. There in turn, declaring himself as God and ultimately being the judge. You see what he's doing there? He's declaring himself the judge. And in such words, that's what he says in verse 39. And he said, for judgment, I came into the world, right? This, this is uh, uh, what we have. For judgment, I came into the world that those who do not uh, see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. 
Let's finish uh, the text with unpacking this. There's quite a few things on this, but uh, I finished last week in the same way. I want to finish with two things. One, Jesus is always doing something we don't know. He's always doing a million things we don't know. And then what are we supposed to do with this text? So the first thing, what is Jesus doing? Last week, if you remember, there's this equation in the Gospel of Luke with Jesus and Elijah. He's not equating himself with, um, with an Old Testament uh, character in this moment, but he's doing something really beautiful with this healing. Meaning, it feels like we just read from the text, we're talking about a man who's physically blind, talking about a man who's physically blind, talking about a man who's physically blind, and then Jesus all of a sudden like, wait a minute, are we talking about physical blindness now, or are we talking about spiritual blindness? Like now he's, in this conversation with the Pharisees, they hear something, and they're not asking, wait, are you saying we're physically blind? No, 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 they're saying, wait, are you saying we're spiritually blind? Something has has turned over. Something has happened here in this moment because Jesus is doing a million things that we don't fully understand. What he's doing in this moment is really cool. But it also is confusing because we said Jesus starts with compassion, but it feels like in this moment, verse 39 says it, he came for judgment. So this is how we need to understand both of these things. The first one, let's start with the the latter, judgment. The best way that I can explain this uh, is a way that a commentator explained it, and I think it's, help, it's helpful. I want you to imagine a man um, goes into the ER, and he just has a terrible flesh-eating virus on his arm. And it's just a disease that's getting into his muscle. It's starting to eat, go down to his bone. It's bad, and it's spreading. So immediately, they rush him in. They give him some anesthesia, and they put him on the table there, and they're about to put him out, and the doctor walks in. And the man with the disease says, are you the one that's here to chop off my arm to amputate me? And the doctor responds with, no, I'm here to save your life. Now, there's a difference there. When he makes that statement, we know what he means. So when, when Jesus makes the declaration, I'll unpack what I mean there. When Jesus makes the declaration for judgment, I, uh, let me, I don't want to misquote Jesus. That's always bad. For judgment, I came into this world, and those who do not uh, now see me may see. It's not counter to, say, John three sixteen and 17, or it's not counter to even John ten forty seven that he's saying he came into the world not to judge. It's plain and simple. Here's what Jesus has done. He has come to offer you life. He's come to offer you life. Take this life. Take this life. He's come to offer you life. And if you don't want this life, the only thing that remains is judgment. He came to offer life, but you don't want this life. And so the way we can understand Jesus' mercy and judgment, truth and, and, and judgment, is the idea that we are part of a kingdom, a city, and he's invited you into this city because outside of these walls is only pain. And so, yes, Jesus in this moment finishes his time with judging the judgers. And he's judging the judgers because the judgers, the Pharisees, don't want to see. So all that's left in rejecting this life is judgment. This would be like the man who is physically blind in the beginning of John 9. Jesus moves towards him and he goes, I'm not blind. He's like, but I can see you're blind. You've been here. Your parents say, I'm not blind. Let me physically heal you. I'm not blind. And this is what the Jews are saying. This is what Jesus declares. Listen to it again. Verse 41. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. If you would admit you can't see, if you would admit you're broken, if you would admit that it's not your way, that your ways have failed you over and over and over again, how you're not tired of it, I don't know. But if you won't admit that, as he talks to the Pharisees, he goes, you think you can see, but because you have all the answers, that makes you blind. This is, I mean, he turns this miracle 
on its head as a lesson. Ain't nobody ever doing stuff like this. This is amazing stuff. So what do we do with it? Like, how do we process this together? I think there's three things that we can take away. Uh, The same thing that we did uh, last week. I want to first start with, um, what does this do for our own souls? How do we process it for our own souls? Where are we in that story in our own souls? And then ultimately, um, what are we supposed to do in response to it? Like as we see the person of Jesus. So the first thing is this. As we read this passage, can't help but think of two people that are in the room. The first person is you, you continue to, to, to keep a distance with Jesus because you process your faults, your flaws, not even things that have naturally been uh, bestowed upon you, like this man didn't choose to be born blind, he wasn't a sinner, but I mean, things you've actually chosen, you've chosen sin, whatever it is, and you have all these things, and you think that Jesus views those things the way that pre-Christian culture views those things, from a place of judgment, meaning you think he sees these things, and he goes, ultimately, cast you out. And I just want to put in front of you, this is really important. If that is you, I need you to know that the same language used in Matthew 7, when it says, seek and you will find, is the same language now used that is talking about Jesus moving towards the blind man. He is moving towards you. You think that he wants nothing to do with you. And you have rightful reason because you've been judged by the world standards on those things. But I'm telling you, Listen, let this be balm over your soul. He will find you. He's stepping towards you. You're pulling back, but he's moving towards you. Now, the second person is the counter opposite. The second person in the room, um, you sit there and you hear a passage like this and you go, "That's, that's cool. But the reality is you'll walk out and you think, maybe, and I hope it's not as a believer, but most likely as a non-believer, you're a good person. I mean, man, you may not be a religious, like, fanatic, but you sure sound like the Pharisee. You're a good person. You've done enough good things. You're okay. And so, so what happens is you don't need the life that's offered because you're okay. You're not as bad as these people. You do enough things. You're good. And all, I'm telling you, all I hear in that moment is I can see I don't need to be healed. I, I can see, I'm fine. I don't need to be healed. Receive the life that is offered and know that the path you've chosen over and over and over again hasn't not let you down. Jesus offers a more beautifully bountiful path. Take that. The second way, so that's the first thing that I think what it does for our souls. Now, if, if, if we start with ourselves as the blind man in this story, now how do we follow Jesus if he's the perfect human? I think we do this in a couple different ways, but I'll try to boil it down to one, one thing. Um, as believers, when we deal with people, we care for both body and soul. And what's happening is the paradigm is shifting. There's this like huge divide between the social justice movement, right? And then the like, let's get everyone saved with tracks movement. And this, this movement seems to be dying, right? And so we find the pendulum swinging back and forth. It will go back and forth to the next generation or whatever it is. But here's what I mean. For some, they go on a medical missions or they go to Ghana and they feed the hungry and they don't even pray. You're a believer. You don't even pray for those you're ministering to. Now, you would go, well, I don't want them to think I'm serving them food just so I can tell them about Jesus. Okay, fine, but it's not less than that. It's not less than that. 
What makes the Christian witness unique is that we're not doing it for our own glory. And so you're doing this for someone else's cause, namely Jesus. And so to not point them towards Jesus is to, be, is to help everyone else, or to help these people like everyone else, like the world. It's, it's not unique to Christian mission. Now, the opposite is true as well. So many can go on these two-week mission trips, these short-term mission trips, tell people about Jesus, do all these things, leave them and not care about their plight, which seems completely counter to the warning of James 2. Like, this is insane. What, go, warm, and be filled, but give them nothing. Like, this is exactly what's being told. And to be honest with you, as you read the narrative of the, the disciples of Jesus Christ, they see this. They see that at certain points the church is erring, right? So what we have with the disciples, uh, Peter and John, they run into a very similar figure uh, as in John 9 in uh, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The man asks for help, says, silver and gold I don't have, but I got this, and they heal him. That's a different way of understanding than before John 9. Meaning the disciples talked about the blind man from a distance in this moment, but in Acts 3, they learned from Jesus, they moved towards him, and they healed him. Do you see, this is the disciples are to mimic the ways of Jesus. Furthermore, as you read like in, say, 1 John, as the people are following uh, uh, Jesus Christ and all this, there's these warnings and commands to keep us balanced. Don't just go try to save people's souls and just tell them about Jesus and that's it. No, care about the plight in life. But don't just care about the plight in life. Remember, tell them about Jesus. That They call themselves sinner or they say they're good without sin. No, that's condemning on their souls. It's a both and. And this is what I think Jesus puts in front of us as we process not being judgers, but being those who are compassionate. And the last one I will finish with is uh, something, takes 60 seconds to say. It's in regards to um, how much we know about the blind man. Meaning, uh, we don't know and we won't hear anything about the blind man after this. And so we get this great account where Jesus had compassion on this man who who we're not aware of, but the Pharisees and the disciples judged him from afar. I just want to put in front of you, um, I think it's fair to say it's our natural tendency to judge those who from, from afar. Again, we'll see the panhandler and we just decide, we, we base a narrative or we see a girl or a guy and we just, we decide, I think that's, and we don't know them. But can I just put in front of you just real quick, like it's the pastor redemption Peoria. What I also see though is something that we might want to work on is we're actually judging the people closest to us as well. Like, it's hard for us, like the neighbors and the friends, to actually believe that God could do something in this person. And so you see it in your spouse, and you use language like, of course, that's the way he is. You see your friend and goes, what do they expect? And so you start with judgment, not compassion. And that's hard because if they're close to you, it's an ongoing relationship. So that's going to wear on you. But pick up the cross of Christ and do it. Follow him as he continues to press in. He's faithful to be compassionate with you. We are called to be compassionate with our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Let's pray. Father, thanks for um, the gospel of John. Thanks for John 9 and for what you give us in it. We're grateful and we're mindful of the fact that we are continuing to learn to to, uh, be in your image and to know what that means. So help us. uh, Let it stir our hearts the rest of this day and this week as we process being people of compassion, living in a Christian culture, and not being people of judgment. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're just going to be as we always are. Um, here's a quote I want to leave you with as um, team comes up to lead us in our time of worship again. This is what it says. It's a guy from a, a guy named Henry Nowen. It's a quote. In order to be of service to others, we have to die to them. 
That is, we have to give up measuring our uh, meaning and value with the yardstick of others. To die to our neighbors means to stop judging them, to stop evaluating them, and thus to become free to be compassionate. Compassion can never coexist with judgment because judgment creates the distance, the distinction which prevents us from really being with the other. Do not judge, and you will be not judged yourself. That's the words of Jesus. That is indeed very hard to live up to, but it contains the secret of compassion. Take some time and be, and Tim's going to come up and lead us in a time of corporate response together.